Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 by way of introduction, and it's going to be a very long introduction. The sermon will be a little different than what I normally do, at least in my mind it is. It will violate almost every rule about sermons and preaching that one is taught in school, so you would not want to use this as your model. My intention had been to continue my messages out of Acts, and yet sickness prevented that, and I had the decision to make of how I wanted to handle this Sunday, and I decided not to push hard on trying to complete the sermon, but rather I wanted to instead bring to you something that would be specific toward Christmas, but as is my habit, mine are not always Christmas messages or Easter messages like people expect. Because today what I want to talk to you about is, and it is specifically a Christmas-oriented message, I want to talk to you about the glory of weakness. Hear that again. I want to talk to you today about the glory of weakness. Now this is strange because we don't like weakness. Even people who claim they like weakness usually show that they're not that good at liking weakness when they are made weak. We like to, in America, operate from a position of strength. We do that in every way, shape, or form, and we don't even think about it. But that is not the way God operates. It's not the way that God functions in this age. In fact, often God does things to us and through us that is weak. And yet, somehow, amazing things can happen. I have a deep, abiding hatred, and I I think that's the only appropriate word for the prosperity type of gospels that you hear and see in so many churches, but most definitely in some prominent ones. Out of Redding, California with Bethel Church, The types of statements that they make will violate almost everything I will say in this sermon, and yet I'm not going to do anything but take you to a lot of verses and just show you what they're saying. This mindset of God wants to unleash his power and that we're we're entering into a new age of God's supernatural there's a movement within our own city that among some churches is called Naturally Supernatural, where we should be expecting and, and, and looking for the supernatural to function in a natural way. It should just be the norm that we should be having our dreams and prophesying our prophecies and watching our healings and so on and so forth. 
There are men and women who are part of a church only because they believe it promises them a level of comfort, a level of safety, a level of prominence. And they fail to understand what is the gospel and what the gospel does to you and I. And as a result, we end up missing what God is doing. And so what, what, what makes me have a hatred for those things, not only do they show a false gospel, but they also mess with you. They mess with you because you begin to think somehow in your smallness or your weakness that you must be doing something wrong. But what you don't grasp is that oftentimes you're doing exactly what God intends for you, and it's good. But because you're being fed in every possible way through the internet, the radio, the readings, conversations, whatever it is, is the means by which you gain your knowledge. Heaven forbid it be through memes, but maybe it's through memes. It could be through your Spotify song list. You are being fed this victorious, higher living kind of stuff in whatever form it might take. And you're using those things to try to pump yourself up out of this state of weakness when, in fact, that's the norm for the Christian. And so what I want to try to show you is is the idea that the real message within the Word of God is that it is weakness that is what God uses for his glory. It is weakness that God uses for his glory. Examples. It's seen in almost every part of the Bible. You see it right away in chapter two and three, I mean, chapter uh, three of uh, Genesis. He's created man in his image, male and female. They bear his image. They are without sin. Sin enters into the world. They become sinners. And now, as fallen creatures, God is going to work his work. Not as innocent creatures with no sin with the power that that brings. No, he's going to work through sinful creatures. And then you see a man like Noah, and, and he gets off the ark, and the first thing they do is plant a vineyard. They, they, over time, they raise the grapes. They make the wine. Next thing you know, he's drunk. Then you come to a man named Abram. He's just a man. He's nothing important, nothing special, living in a city called Ur, And yet God says, I'm going to take you, this small, unknown, old man, you and your wife. I'm going to show you a place that will be yours, and I'll make you a great nation. He's like, we're a little old to be making babies. And yet God works through that. God brings a small, tiny nation of only about 120 people into the nation of Egypt because a famine is so great that they can't sustain themselves. 400 years later, they're nothing but slaves, and God brings them out of that. And then they whine and grumble themselves all the way through the wilderness to the point that none of them but a few are able to enter into the land God promised. And then when they enter the land, they're surrounded by very powerful people, and God purposely keeps them weak. So the way they defeat Jericho is not the way that anyone else would have defeated Jericho. They're weird people walking around the city each day and then eventually blows trumpets like that's anything, and then God destroys. 
And it goes on and on and on and on. He uses a man named Moses who stutters. He uses a man named David who's an adulterer and a murderer. Over and over and over again, all the way through the Bible, what you see is God using weak things. But I think the place that you can see it most simply and powerfully is in Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. And I think I know why. Uh, I suspect that the reason is that the Corinthians are really much like you and I. They would fit into the American idea very well. The whole idea of loving of self and the personal ability and strength. I've had the privilege of being at Corinth. It's very interesting to be able to walk down the very road, the main road that Paul would have walked down, looking at the Bama seat, looking at the, the places where the runners who would run the races, where they would seek the prizes, where the men who would run would set their feet to start the race, see the many temples, and reflect upon what he was dealing with. Corinth was a crossroads. It was a major port city. It was a place where people from all around the world would come and ply their trade. And as a result, it was exceedingly cosmopolitan, all sorts of languages. It would have been exciting to go through the marketplace. You would not hear just one language. You'd hear a multitude of languages. One of the things I enjoy when I travel is when I get out of America and I'm into some other foreign airport and so many other places you, you don't hear English that often. You hear all of these other languages. It's most fun for me is when I'm in an African airport and you see the Muslim dress and you see the heavy Asian influence and, and all of these languages and people are doing their thing. That's Corinth. And with it comes all of the thoughts and the philosophies and, and the love of the word, and, and I don't mean the written word of God, I'm saying the, the spoken word and the ability to speak in persuasive manners and the theater and on and on and on. And all of this affects the church there, and Paul has to spend a lot of time rebuking them. And so what he does is he packages everything in this imagery of weakness. And I want to show you several passages. Most of them, I think you would say you know. But I want you to prepare your minds to consider the ultimate display of glorious God-exalting weakness. And that is found in the incarnation of the coming of Christ. If we are to understand that incarnation, then we have to understand how God works. So go to 1 Corinthians if you're not there by now. Chapter one, and we're just going to briefly, we're going to do a kind of a jet tour over many, many passages. So keep your fingers limber if you can. In chapter one, verse 18 and following, he says, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God for it is written. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is a wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. 
For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the what? The weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not for what purpose? That he might nullify the things that are For what purpose? So that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that it is that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What he is doing here is he's showing the intellectual and societal weakness on display you and I look at our place in this world, in society, and, and we match our wits with one another. I'm sure you've been in a room with somebody at some point in your life, and you're like, that guy's way too smart. He's just way smart. And I'm sure you've other times been in a room with somebody and says, that guy's dumb. And, and there's that moment where you can feel very superior when you're around some people, but also you can feel very inadequate when you have somebody who is just incredibly bright and it, they can't help it. It just comes out of their mouth. And we begin to match ourselves and arrange ourselves as to how we see ourselves and how we fit into all of this. Well, Paul was a man, a trained Pharisee. And he shows in his writing that he also had a very strong training in what's called rhetoric. It wasn't like he was ignorant. He was exceedingly well-trained, well-read. And that was one of the ways in Corinth and many other places of that day that one would be judged to be wise or worth listening to. Why would you gather around a man who cannot bring his thoughts to bear in a logical, proper, persuasive manner? We're, we're going to judge the man's arguments and his use of words and how he, he does it in such a way that you're wowed by it. We would call it today that that person is a wordsmith. And people will gather and come from far and wide to hear and consider somebody who they think is worthy of their ears, which speaks volumes With that in mind, though, follow his argument and compare it to how you often read and hear people discuss the Christian faith today. In verse 18, he says that the message of the cross, the gospel meaning, has only two options. Only two. A rejection or a rejoicing. That's your only two options. You're going to reject it or you're going to rejoice in it. Nothing in between. I've said this two weeks ago, I believe it was, that that you have to come to grips with that if you're ever going to be able to go out, no matter where you're at, with the gospel on your lips, 
You'll never be able to do that until you're convinced that there's only two options. The people were rejected or rejoice over, or as I said a couple of weeks ago, there is no other message and no, nothing else that you can do to bring a person to faith in Christ. So expect it and, and accept it. Last week, Grayson did a wonderful sermon just on the folly of atheism. Quit thinking that you don't know what to say to an atheist and and that you're intimidated by him or her. Who cares? They're fools. They said in their own heart there is no God, yet their own heart tells them otherwise. And they suppress it and push it down. He says, look, when you preach the word of the cross, when you preach the gospel to those who are dying, perishing, those who are under the wrath of God, he's like, they will either reject or they'll rejoice in it. Why, though? What's, what's the reason? For it is written, for this reason, in verse 19, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cross is the place that God has designed that every other thought, every other God, every other belief, every other conviction no matter what it is or how many of them you might have, that all of them are ultimately destroyed. God has designed the gospel in such a way, not so that you look at it and say, what a monument of incredible logic. No one can defeat this. Instead, he has constructed and made the gospel in such a way that it looks like foolishness, But ultimately, its purpose is to take all of the thinking of this age and destroy it. Hear well. The cross, meaning the gospel, sounds foolish and weak. How many of you, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but just how many of you have ever felt like when you're like, man, I I should share the gospel, or this guy needs the gospel, and then you have second thoughts. How many of you have ever had that where you're like, I don't know, it just, how do you, how do you turn the, I hear it this way, how do you turn the corner in your conversation, or it just seems stupid or weak or, or, inadequate. I mean, I look at the person, they seem so happy or they're fulfilled or they have no problems. And so you're waiting, maybe maybe if they get cancer, I'll be able to do it. Like, see, if they have cancer, then they'll understand they need the gospel. And what you don't understand is that what you're actually doing is confessing the very thing the gospel is. It's weak. It's insufficient. You look at it and you're like, I'm going to look like a fool if I say this. And so you wait. You're waiting for that. We call it an open door. Just that God would open the door that I might share the gospel. Or the other option is you just share the gospel. Bust the door down. Go all swat on them. I'm I'm serious. Just we should never be shocked when we speak of it and they give you a look. But we're afraid of that look. God has determined that through the gospel, his power will ultimately be seen and it will destroy it all. Now in verse 20, look down, where's the wise man? 
Where's the scribe? He, he invites us to consider, and he's inviting the Corinthians to consider, because this would be a city filled with those who are purported to be wise and those who are the scribes and the, the debaters. All of that took place there. I've literally stood in the area where all of them would gather and do their, their discussions and debates and arguments and whatnot. He says, Bring all of them who are considered wise, whether in words or in writing, bring them all and lay them before the gospel. In other words, bring your Muhammad, your Krishna, your Shiva, your Buddha, your Plato, your Aristotle, and any other God that you desire or thought, bring them. Bring them all, in fact, and let them make their case before the true God. And Paul says, In the last half of that verse, what's happened has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. Now, I want you to notice the tense change. In verse 8, 19, I will destroy the wisdom. That's future tense, right? Here he says, I've already made, past tense, the wisdom foolish. So already the wisdom of this age is foolish through God. And he is there, we're waiting a day yet to come in which he will then destroy it all. For what reason? Why has God already made them foolish? Why? Well, verse 21 answers, for this reason. Since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. Instead, God was well-pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Here, If you can get this, it will really change you. You say, I'm not so sure you're right, Matt. I don't think that they have, in fact, been made to look foolish. They don't, sure don't look like it's foolish. Millions believe this. Millions believe that. Billion or so believe in Islam. So what do you mean that It's been made to look foolish. It's been made to look foolish in this way. Not one of them has ever brought a person to God. None of them. If you're one here and you are not a Christian and you say, look, I'm not buying into this. I'm really intrigued with Buddhism. I've met a few like that or Hinduism. I've I've met in my time Satanists, you name it, I've met them. And, And in all of them, you can feel intimidated and you're like, man, I don't even know what Buddhists believe. How can I even share the gospel? What do I do? I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't matter. None of them have ever brought a person to know God. You can pursue your alternative views. You can chase after your various religions, read your philosophy, shake your head at the poor Christian. But in the end, I'll tell you this, you will never know God. You will never find God through any of them. God goes a different way. He does this always, and it's very interesting to observe in the Bible that he does it through weakness, and in this sense, he does it through the weakness of this thing called the gospel message. And it's not just the message, but it's the message preached. I could do a message just on that word preached, Caruso, proclaimed. That it is God's method of saving people not just through the gospel, but as it is proclaimed. And we try to do just about anything but proclaim it. To proclaim is, requires you to speak. 
But that is what God has ordained as the means by which a man or woman might know God, is you speaking the gospel to a person. In verse 22, then, it shows that what the world, and some of you maybe, require to supposedly believe. You're like, okay, well, I'm, I'm open to this, but you got to show me. For indeed, he says, the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks search for wisdom. Those are the two basic groups here. The Jew is the one raised up with the word of God in the Old Testament. They have the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, all of that. And they're looking for additional signs. Show me something else. Show me something else. Give me a sign that, that Jesus is really the Christ, the promised one of the old. For the Greek, meaning the Gentile, the, the non-Jew, he, he, he wants to be persuaded through your argument through your tight syllogisms. He wants you to be able to prove to him in one way or another that this is a superior way. Even to this day, we have that. Some of you are sitting here and you still have it in your mind. It's up to me to decide if I agree with this. And it's my job to try to prove it to you. I don't have to prove anything, and I will never prove it to you. The Bible does not try to prove you anything. It simply says, proclaim it. Proclaim it. This is who Christ is. This is the way of life. This is our hope. And it is a work of God that then takes that heart and changes in such that he says or she says, I believe this. But we are asking for signs. We're asking for some kind of wise word. Verse 23 then shows us the gospel message. But we, you want signs, you want an argument, but we just preach. Preach what? Christ crucified. We just give you the gospel. Here's here's what it is. God has ordained that through Jesus Christ, you might find forgiveness for sin. How? Because he was crucified. What's that got to do with anything? Because God demands a sacrifice for sin, something must die. And it's going to either be you or it's going to be a substitute. And in Christ, he is our substitute, the Bible says, that he became sin on our behalf. He took our sin. He took our death. He died on the cross and then conquered that through his resurrection. And the moment you start saying that, you'll be amazed at the number of people who will then just say, this is stupid. I don't, I, I don't have time for this. And all they've done is they've proven what God says will be the reaction about the gospel. And so you end up with one of three reactions when you do that. And we see it happen all the time in the last half of verse 23 and 24. To the Jews, when you preach about Jesus Christ, they're going to trip over him. One, they cannot accept something or someone that would have been crucified. It's a sign of God's curse upon that man. And so they'll reject it. They'll just stumble over it. To the Gentiles, meaning everyone else, it's just foolishness. It just doesn't make sense to them. Why would God do that? I don't even know if there is a God. You, you keep talking about the stuff about sin. Hey, everyone has their own convictions, and what's wrong for you doesn't mean it's wrong for me on and on. And it just will be called foolishness. But then he says, within both those people groups in 24, the ones who are called, meaning that God is brought and called unto salvation, 
that same Christ who is a stumbling block or foolishness now becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's what sets you apart, beloved, is that you're actually stupid enough to believe the gospel. And it's not a bad thing. Everyone else in the world looks at you like you're a whack job and that you don't understand and you're not that bright and we really should just treat you as a simple little person and maybe not invite you to Christmas parties because you know what's going to happen. And the whole time you say, no, this one, Jesus Christ is wisdom and power. He's life. He's my hope. He's my joy. He's my Lord. And so he asks the Christians there in Corinth to simply look at themselves in verses 26 and 7. For consider your calling, brethren. He's saying all of you who are Christians here in the city of Corinth, consider yourselves. And so now I'm going to ask you, Missio Dei Fellowship, consider yourselves. That there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble but that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. This is your reality. He is saying, you, for the most part, you are all here saved because you're weak, despised, foolish, worthless. Doesn't that go counter to what you get? in so much of what you hear and see in the churches of America? Think about how you present the gospel to somebody. Are you, are you preaching actually inadvertently a gospel that tells the person that they're going to get things for this? Rather than understanding that you're telling them to come in weakness and to embrace that weakness, that they are a wretched sinner with nothing to give to God but sin. And God in his mercy saves you, not because you're useful to him. The whole thing that really bothered me about like the Kanye West when he was making his profession, I have no idea where he's at now. He's just doing all kinds of strange things. But if you heard that podcast I, what bothered me so much about it was how many people made that like that was some big news. It's like, so he's made a profession. What makes him any different than you? Or you? Why are we so excited about Kanye? You know why? Because we do not rejoice in weakness, but we only rejoice in power. Think of what he can do. Think of the way he can spread the gospel. Think of what he can accomplish. He will not accomplish anything that you cannot accomplish. It's always through weakness. It's through weakness. And if you can accept that, then the Christmas message becomes beautiful and your life becomes a much more peaceful life. He chose the weak, the poor, the simple. I don't want to be known as a simple one. Unless I'm simple and it's good. In verse 28, it says that he chose the outcasts and the despised. 
For what purpose? Well, verse 27 makes it very simple. To shame the wise, to shame the things that are strong. In verse 28, so that he might nullify the things that are to the result that no man should boast before God. I can tell you this, if you are here and you are not following Jesus Christ, and you are still worried more about what people see about you, you want to be strong before others, you want to be respected, you want to be admired, I can say pursue all of that, and I will say pursue it all, go for it. But you will find that in the end, you'll still face the same pit called the grave that everyone else does, and you will find that God will destroy all of it. Because he has designed that the way of life is going to be through the shame of the cross and the weakness of the cross. And so the only goal and purposes in verses 28 to 31 is, is to divert the praise and focus from us and others and only to God. And so verse 30 makes it very clear that you're saved in a certain way. But by whose doing? His, God's doing. You are where? Say it. In Christ. The only way that you became in Christ or saved has nothing to do with you. This is what's so frightening when you have younger people who are raised in the Christian faith and they decide that they're going to walk away from it or they don't want it or mom, dad, you're bothering me. I just don't, come on, I don't believe that. And, and oftentimes if you can get them to be slightly honest, they'll admit that what they really want to do is go sample this world because they just know they're missing out on some good stuff. And then later they'll come back when they're ready to Jesus. Beloved, if they was that simple, fine, except it's not up to you. None of you came to Jesus Christ because you decided. You came to Jesus Christ by his doing. And purely his doing. Because of God's work, you see Jesus not as stupid and weak and foolish, but you see him as your righteousness and your holiness and your redemption from sin. Go over to chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom again. This is how they function back there. You come in and you present your arguments. You would arrange yourself at the right place at the right time. And you begin to enter into this debate. And you start with this speech. And everyone would judge you on how well you put together your message. And he says, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Why? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's like, I'm not here to make a philosophical argument. I'm here to tell you about Jesus. And I was with you. How? In weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Why was he that way? Because he knew the message he was preaching appears foolish. So each one of you, and I love you dearly, the ones that are so faithful in this, and you say, you know, it's hard sometimes to share the gospel. And yet I keep hearing about how you do share the gospel. It's okay. You're, you're right up there with the Apostle Paul. 
with much fear and trembling and weakness, you shared the faith. Good for you. And the others who are saying, I want to, but I'm waiting till, till I'm stopped being weak or f- having fear or trembling, you'll never do it then. Because the message that you're supposed to preach sounds stupid. You're looking at a person who is in love with this world and in love with his sin and, and hates the light, as Grayson pointed out in, in John chapter 3, because if you come to the light of Jesus Christ through the gospel, your deeds are seen, right? And nobody wants themselves to be exposed, so they're going to lie about it. They're going to stay in the shadows and always on the periphery, and you keep trying to drag them into it, and they're like, leave me alone. And you're afraid, and you're filled with t- t- uh, uh, fear and trembling. Well, you're just along with Paul. And my message and my preaching, he says, were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power. In other words, he's like, I wasn't there such, with such a good argument that you were compelled by the argument. You know what really brought every one of these people to faith? The Spirit of God. He just gave the message. He proclaimed it and let everything else work itself out. Why did you do it? So that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And and I will tell you over and over again that one of the things I think that happens is that we have so many who profess Jesus Christ, but they're only that way because they believe you. Your argument was good enough that they're convinced. Moms and dads, that's what you can do. You can convince them because they trust mom and dad, but they don't trust the gospel. They, I trust my husband, I trust my wife, I trust my grandparents, whatever it is, and the trust is resting in your ability to somehow spin it and convince them. But all of you, in some way or another, probably have experienced that moment when they start hearing a different voice somewhere else that they think is pretty smart, and he knows stuff. You ought to read his books. He's pretty compelling. And you watch them walk away, and you're like, what happened? What happened? You know what happened is they never believed the gospel. They believed you. It has to be done by the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit is such that he works it so that it grips you and there is no other place to go. Christ becomes your life. I hope in some way I'm making sense. He modeled this weakness. And what's sad is the church at Corinth mocked him for it. Go to chapter 4, verses 10 through 16. He picks this up again. I'll just start in verse 9, actually. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all. In what way? As men condemned to death. Why? Because we become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We just look like fools. We are fools for Christ's sake. Now he's going to be sarcastic. And Paul in chapter 1st, and especially 2nd Corinthians, shows you how you can, in a godly way, use irony and sarcasm for the cause of Christ. He's being very sarcastic here. He says, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you, oh, you are prudent in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished. 
but we're without honor. To this present hour, we're, we're both hungry and thirsty. Can't you hear the prosperity gospel mocking? Paul, you're obviously doing something wrong. You don't have the house. You don't have the clothes. You don't have the followers. In fact, you're hungry all the time. You don't dress that well. You smell a little, and you're not that bright. Even though Paul actually could run circles around them, he refuses to allow that to be his means. He says, we're poorly clothed. We're roughly treated. We're homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, what do we do? Us stupid apostles, we bless. When we're persecuted, what do we do? We endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We try to make peace with the person. We have become as the scum of the world. I mean, can you get this? Is is he making sense yet? The apostles have become the scum of the world, the drugs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For you were to have countless tutors, if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, people who teach you the way of Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, who was their father? Paul, moms and dads with wayward children, can you not feel that pain? You listen to everybody but your mom, everybody but your dad, and yet there is no one that loves you more than us. Paul is saying the same thing. Corinth, you're listening to everybody out there under the sun, but you only have one dad, me. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. Come and be weak, like Paul. In 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 16. Paul writes to them, we do not lose heart, But though our outer man, that's our body, is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, because if we look at the things that are seen, we're going to stumble because we're going to start thinking that they mean something. But instead, he says, we look at the things which are not seen. I just told a mom and dad who are discouraged to one degree or another with the discipline and training of their children, but they're being diligent. And I said, when you discipline, you do it in faith. Not for what you see, but what you know is the fruit that you're believing God to bring because God has said, this is the way we do it. This is all he's saying here. We trust that the inner man is being renewed, even though our whole body is falling apart. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, temporary. 
but the things which are not seen are eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, our body he's talking about, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with their dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we have, having put it on, shall not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, what is to be our lot? What are you supposed to experience in this tent, this body of ours? You look at it and you see it. We groan. We groan. That's our life. That's the life of being burdened because we don't want to be unclothed, but to be clothed in order that what the mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the spirit as a pledge. Therefore, be always of good courage. He says, look, we carry about us this body of death. It's falling apart. It's getting older. The world is telling you how you can exercise and do this and take those supplements and, and do this exercise, and you can stave off and push off the, the, the reality of death. I welcome my gray hair. I welcome my gray hair, not because it's, it's inevitable, but because it reflects that I'm dying. And I want you to know that. I want you to know I'm dying. I want you to know you're dying. I want you to wake up with aches and pains. I want you to say, ah, oh, my hands don't work like they used to. They're supposed to. And they're to remind you that this is not a place to give any hope to. Every time your pipes burst and your car breaks down and your roof leaks and your job fails you and on and on and on, they're all good blessings from God to show you that you do not live in this age. It is not yours. And to look beyond it to the one that God has promised. That's an act of weakness. Well, there's others I could go, but let's go now to my actual sermon. Um, Colossians. Chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. The whole Christmas story is actually one of weakness and humiliation beyond our comprehension. To see it, though, requires a backdrop. Now, we're going to go very quickly here. In verse, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 17, we, we're hearing Paul do this incredible statement about who is Jesus Christ. And I just want you to get a sense of who Christ is. Jesus is, in verse 15, the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn, meaning the preeminent over all of creation. For by him, all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Those phrases, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, not talking about just earthly powers, but spiritual powers. All of the various spiritual creatures that you and I don't even see, all of them made by him. All things have been created by him, and not only just by him, but for him. I want you to keep that in your mind. That's who the Son is. That is who Christ is. The creator of all things, preeminent over all, and in the exact image of the invisible God. So in Isaiah 6, just don't turn there, just 
reflect. Remember, Isaiah has that vision of God high and lifted up, and you see the angels flying around them, and they're crying out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah doesn't then say, I have got the best book deal known to mankind. When I get back and I can write about this, I will make money. He doesn't look at that. He doesn't laugh. He doesn't find it humorous or cool. It breaks him. It says, woe. And you guys, the Hebrew word for woe is about as bad as you can. It's, it's I'm torn to shred down to the atoms. I'm destroyed. Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among an unclean people. All he can see is how unfit he is to see this. I cannot look on this with joy. I cannot look on this with hope. I cannot look at anything but my wretchedness. The glory of God is filling the heavens and the earth, he says. And then in John chapter 12, Jesus said that that vision was a vision of him. This is our Lord. This is who you worship. This is who we obey, supposedly. We follow, right? We say we love, we sing, and rejoice. But the story of Christmas is so different from that. How does he come? You have the mystery of the incarnation, God with us. Emmanuel, that's all it means, the name. You shall call his name Emmanuel. Why? For God is with us. That instead of him saying, rise up and you fix yourself so that you can come up and meet me, God says, no, I will become like you and I'll come to you. Some of you are still trying to fix yourself, and you'll never do it. Christ is the way you get fixed. The mystery is that he took on flesh. He became like sinful man. He dwelt among us. We behold his glory, but we did not see it as glory. He slept. He was mistreated. He was lied to. He got hungry. He wept. It's the mystery of that whole idea of God taking on flesh. And then you have the mystery of the virgin birth, the glory and the shame that's involved in Matthew 1. The virgin birth is something that's well attested, but it's also missed by us that it's all wrapped up in shame. So in Matthew 1, verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. When his merry mother had been betrothed, which is what we would kind of think of as engaged, but when you're betrothed in that day, you're married. You're just not having consummated it. So you're now betrothed, so now you are committed to that man, and there is no option, okay? If you want to break it off with that man, do you know what you have to do? You have to have a certificate of divorce. You're married. You're just not yet consummating it. And so Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, but they have not yet had sexual intercourse. Before they came together, that's what that means, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph finds this out, and that's part of the purpose of the betrothal period. And he finds out that she's pregnant. Well, he knows I'm not involved in this, 
but he was also a good man, a righteous man. He didn't want to shame her. He loved this woman, but he was not able to have her because she was not pure. We throw away our purity in this culture today as if it's just something that we can discard like a, a, a piece of trash or something. We don't understand the value of it. But for Joseph, he's like, I can't have her as my wife. She's not been an honorable woman, but I love her. And so I'm going to do this quietly. I'm not going to make a public spectacle of her. And then the angel comes and says, dude, (laughs) this is what's happened. And so he took her and he kept her as a virgin until she gave birth. Everybody looks at her as she's getting bigger and bigger and everyone knows what's happened. Somebody did something that they shouldn't have done. And the whispers are there. And so Jesus gets born under this shadow of shame and questions. In Luke, 20, uh, Luke 1, just go over there. We, we kind of make this virgin birth like this really cool, sweet thing. Isn't it neat? And we fail to understand the shame that's involved in it. In the sixth month, verse 26, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, and a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. Well, she was troubled like anyone would be if an angel showed up and kept pondering what kind of a salutation this might be. What does he mean? Why am I favored? I'm a nobody. And Jesus said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And Mary says, um, how? How can this be since I'm a virgin? And he says, through the Spirit. The Spirit of God will make you this way. There's a glory in that, but there's also the shame attached to it. And she took it. She took the shame because she also recognized the glory that however this will work out, I'm going to bring the Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, we won't turn there, but in verses 51 and 52, it says that as Jesus was growing, he grew in strength and stature and wisdom. How? How does God in flesh learn? How does he grow? Did he ever stumble and skin his knee? Did he ever have to cry and be comforted by his mother? He certainly was breastfed and he had to have his, they had diapers, but changed. I mean, all of the things that are just part part of the human experience was his. In Luke chapter 4, it says that he was literally dragged out into the wilderness by the Spirit where he was tempted, in the fullest sense of the word, by Satan. In Philippians chapter 2, it's just described for us in a very clean way. Philippians chapter 2 He says, have this attitude, verse 5, in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Holy, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. 
He took on the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. That is the Christmas story. And being found in an appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, bestowing on him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. You see, the purpose of this birth and death is not vague. It's to accomplish this great work that's going to be done through weakness. In Galatians 4.4, God says that in the fullness of time, at that right time, he brought forth his son into the world, but he was born under the dominion and the curse of the law. He might redeem us from that. The curse of sin had to be broken. The power of sin is found in death, and only in one who could go perfectly to the cross as a sin payment and then conquer the penalty of sin, which is death through resurrection, can we find hope. In other words, the whole story of Christmas is weakness. Let me tie all this up then. If if we are to be unwise people, we will think that we have progressed beyond weakness. And we will think that we have progressed beyond the cross of Christ. We're going to seek that abundant life here and now and seek our leisure and pleasures as if they are somehow our rights. But if you are wise, you will learn today to finally rest in the glory of weakness because that was fully displayed on that Christmas day in Jesus Christ when our Lord humbled himself, taking on human flesh that he might dwell with sinners for the purpose of redeeming them. And when you share the gospel, I would ask that as you do that, that you keep in mind that that is what you're calling a person to follow, a path that will look foolish, look weak, and will result in them being despised. You will find that not many will take that, but the ones who are called will find it and love it with all their being. Let's pray. Holy Fathers, we prepare now to go home, whatever it is that we have planned and prepared, whatever it is that we think ought to be, we know that your ways are your ways and you have ordained our way. And so I pray that you will teach us to learn to be content, rejoice, and even in the times of great weakness and discouragement that we might give thanks to our Lord who became the ultimate image of weakness in Christ. Teach us to love Christ And look forward to that day when he finally comes back in fullness of power and all things are made new. But also that we rejoice in Christ even now as we wait, that we would walk in faith, not sight, that we'd not allow the things that this world is lying to us right now to trap us. Let us be faithful to call people, even though we're filled with fear and trembling, to follow Jesus Christ. I ask in your son's name. Amen.